Hosanna, a fellowship of Christians. All right, good morning, Hosanna. Hey, there he is. Thanks for coming and joining us on this uh, little bit dreary Sunday morning. But uh, we're going to worship together today. And uh, I just want to remind everyone, if you're, if, you're, if you're visiting here today, when you come to church on Christmas, why, why, why do we come to church on Christmas? Because we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes, and if you're new, you might, you might not know why we celebrate Christmas. It could just be presents and getting together with family and being nice to people, which is great. I think that's awesome. But we are celebrating the birth of Christ. And uh, that's why we, we come on and we sing Christmas songs and we sing Christmas hymns and we sing and we worship God. We worship God every day and every, every week of the year. But at Christmas time, we celebrate his birth. And, you know, when he came uh, to be here with us in human form. So, uh, just want to remind everybody of that this morning, and uh, don't be stressed out if you don't have all your gifts bought. I don't. <laughs> I got to stuff my stockings yet. <laughs> but uh, so don't be stressed out. Just come here, worship, relax, restore, and uh, just be here with us this morning. Thank you.
losing my voice there a little bit. Deb's not looking well, but I asked. Deb, can you grab me a thing of water? <laughs> I forgot to grab one. Thank you. Now this next song, you guys all well know, we sing it every Christmas. We'll come all you faithful.
guys did fine with me stopping and taking a drink of water. I heard you. It's good. It's good.
just stand up say hi to everyone say hi to someone next to you because it is well with our souls it's well with mine that last song just did it to me Please remain standing if possible. I wanted to catch you before you got down. And had to get the whole way back up. <laughs> we know what, the, what that's like. So each week we are lighting candles here on our Advent wreath to symbolize the gifts that God has given us in, the, in Christ. And so two weeks ago, we're doing some motions with this. So two weeks ago, we stood together with our arms outstretched and our hands cupped like this to receive the hope that God has to give to us. Uh, as a po- in a posture of openness. So let's do that again today. You're already doing it as we relight that candle of hope. And Deb's lighting this week because she's good at this. <laughs> Last week, we stood together then with our arms raised to heaven, shaking them like that in celebration. It was a posture of rejoicing. So we do that again today as we light the candle of joy. And today, we remember our hope and joy, but we also notice the peace God has given us. Jesus said, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. We who follow Jesus can enjoy this remarkable peace in our own lives and live it out in front of an anxious, disturbed conflict-ridden world. Peace is the knowledge of the Lord that we proclaim from the deepest depths of our soul. So today, we, light, we hold our hands together in front of us in a posture of trusting prayer. And let's do that as we light the candle of peace and say yes to the peace that God wants to give to us. Now, let's do all three together so we get into the rhythm here, okay? Hope, joy, peace. Amen. And all God's people said? Amen. (laughs) Yes. 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 All right, since we're talking about peace today, let's take a moment and let's pray for peace, all right? 
Father, we're grateful that you are our peace. We recognize that we live in a world that is full of conflict. We live in a messy, messy, messy world. And Father, we hurt for those who are living in a place of conflict, wherever they are, whether they're here this morning or whether they're someplace around the world. And God, we recognize that until you come again, there will never be a world that is completely at peace. But we still pray for peace, Father. We pray for conflict to the end. We pray for those who have been hurt and who are experiencing such terrific lives. But in the midst of this, as we are in the Advent season, we thank you that Peace isn't the peace, inner peace is not necessarily the absence of conflict. But we recognize that you can and are our peace in us every day. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Jesus, help us to be reminded of the peace that we have in us. And Father, may we somehow or another, in some way, be able to help pass that peace to those who we come into contact with every day. Jesus, thank you that you are our peace. We love you and thank you for the love you have for us. Amen and amen. Ushers, you may take the offering. Our Change for Change offering for the month of December will go towards blessing Water Street Mission. Our gifts will provide care to men, women, and families experiencing homelessness and to those who are most at risk in the community. It will provide hot meals, safe shelter, and more, and it reignites hope for a brighter future. So if you have some change, and you can put it in the bucket back, uh, is it back there somewhere? Yeah. Where I can't, I, usually I can see it. Okay, it's back there somewhere. I just I can't see it. Somebody's head's in the way. So can you move your head for a minute, lock your head? No, that's okay. So it is back there. All right, great. Uh, The adult class, Five Freedoms, continues today in what room? Very good. You guys are great. The blue room. Absolutely. How many of you attended the Hosanna Christmas party last Sunday? How many of you enjoyed the hula dance? Yay, April, you and your hula dancers. You couldn't see the joy that was going on behind you. If you we wish you'd had eyes. Thank you for uh, playing for us, and it was great. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we definitely want to thank Sherry and uh, Jerry Allen, Karen and Kevin Swigert and Chris Poje for all their time. Let's thank them, all right? Let's give them thanks. And to all of you who provided the entertainment, it was a lot of fun. I, I say we do something like that again next year. That was just so much fun. It was really great. And the food, did you enjoy the food? I mean, the food was absolutely fantastic. It really was. It's too bad those people aren't here so we can let them know how good it is. But, you know, it was absolutely wonderful. So next Sunday, 
we will only have one service. So if you show up here for the 930 service, you're going to be looking at a note on the door, hopefully, that says, uh, come back at 430. <laughs> there. Right, there will be, there will be a, a recorded online service for those of you who want to participate in a service online Christmas Eve. But we will be here at 4.30, and it's going to be a, a, a great opportunity. Um, there will be offering buckets here at the back of the auditorium so that you can you know, be sure to bring your offering. And if you can share some Christmas cookies with us, we will enjoy them after the service. So you can drop those off uh, in the kitchen as, as you're coming. And I believe that's it until Tony and Joanne come up. Oh, that's right now. So, Tony, Joanne, it's your turn. I want to see the hula dancers again. April, Wendy, where are you? She's not showing her face again after that. That's what it is. So, sorry, the lights are bright. The lights are bright in Texas, or that's the stars are bright. Anyway, let that was awesome. Let's jump in. Anyone remember people not named Ed McMahon delivering checks for Publishers Clearinghouse? Yeah. This is one of those weird things uh, that some people call Mandela effect. We all remember Ed McMahon showing up the door with his big check. Actually, he never did that. He worked for one of the competitive, competing sweepstakes, never left the studio. But Publishers Clearinghouse would send folks out, they still do this, I think, to deliver these big certificates, these big checks at somebody's front door and let them know they won big in the sweepstakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and had them literally this huge check. Now, let's imagine. And someone actually did that, did something like that to you, wanted to give you a no-strings-attached check for a gazillion dollars. With inflation, that's worth about $15.75, but just go with it. you take it, wouldn't you? Of course you would. How, then, would you say yes to the check? Last week, it was yes to the dress. So how would you say yes to the check? Well, in English, this is really cool. They say that the amount of words you have in a language reveals something for something, reveals its priority in your life. So like Eskimos have like 45 words for snow or something like that, you know? So Mm -hmm. we have an awful lot of words in English, an awful lot of slang words for yes, Mm -hmm. including all of these. Okie dokie, aha, yeah, yep, totally. Or the short version, totes. (laughs) True that, for sure, for sure. (laughs) <laughs> Word, darn tootin', roger that, yes sirree, Bob, uh, amen, which we've already done today, I, I, and my favorite is the Pope Catholic. <laughs> we assume that last one is rhetorical. <laughs> or maybe, we got, a, we got a somewhat diverse group here, maybe you would want to give your affirmation in another language. And again, there's all sorts of options of some of the more common, well, hundreds of languages, but here are some of the more common ones. See, we, ya. It's amazing how many languages say ya. I guess that's where we get ya, yay, yes, or whatever. So ya, nai, da, she. Notice they're all relatively short. We want to make yes real easy to say, right? <laughs> Hi, nam, ken, evit, tak, ano, 
And my favorite one, Akya, which is Amish. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> now, look over those lists again, either if you can flip back and forth mm -hmm. if, if possible, or um, choose one of those ways of saying yes. Just, just, just choose one in your mind, hold on to it, and we're going to get back to it later in the message, okay? Now, the reason we're doing this is because we're in a series of Advent messages about saying yes. Two weeks ago, we noticed that ancient Hebrew didn't actually have a word for yes. All these other ones, the modern Hebrew word was up there, by the way, it's Ken. But the ancient Hebrew did not have a word for it. So people would agree to something in one of two ways. They would either repeat back a portion of what was said to them. I gave you the example, do you want to go for pizza after church? And the answer would be pizza after church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they would, say, they would agree to something simply by doing it. Now, we've been looking at biblical stories each week. The biblical stories of the Advent seasons reflect both of those ways of saying yes. Last week, we noticed that Mary said yes with these words. She never says the word yes. She says, may your word to me be fulfilled. That's her way in her culture of saying it. You've just said all the stuff about me, bring it on. Would be the way we might translate that. It's yes. This week... We're going to look at someone whose words were never recorded. We do not hear this person's voice at all in Scripture. But this one is remembered and honored for his actions, for his yes to what God was saying of him. He did it. And his name was, as you might expect, Joseph. Now, all the people we've been talking about have had very ordinary names for their time. Even Zechariah, not a big name. Well, Zach is. Yeah. You know, the shortened version. That's still a big name in our, in our language, in our generation. Elizabeth, John, Mary, Jesus. Maybe not so much in English, but in Spanish cultures, Jesus is a big name. And now Joseph. These were common names in Hebrew. They're common names in our own time. Which hints, I think, at the fact that God's redemption is being worked out among people very much like us. Yep. For people who were kind of common, ordinary, run-of-the-mill to some degree. Perhaps in all of these, however, no one is more ordinary than Joe. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, we might, pay, we might want to pay some particular attention to him and how he responds to what God invites him into. He might have some good things to offer us in our own time, in our own ordinary responses to God's surprising work among us. And yes, indeed, he does. So... What do we know about Joseph? <clears throat> well, we know that um, Jesus was called the carpenter's son. But carpenter uh, may not be the best English translation of Joseph's occupation. It would be more accurate to call him a builder. Since in that time and in that place, houses were largely constructed of stone or mud bricks because yeah, and some, some wood was used, but wood was used more sparingly because there weren't many trees in Israel. There weren't many trees then, there aren't many trees now. And since trades were usually handed down from generation to generation, Joseph very likely trained his young apprentice Jesus as a builder too. And as Jesus grew in age and in skill, he would most certainly have helped Joseph lay some massive foundation stones. And it's so much fun 
when you think about Jesus growing up with Joseph, and then think about some of the parables he told, how so much of Jesus' teaching was drawn out of his own human experience. So we're probably hearing some of Joseph's very practical wisdom echoing in his grown son's parable about the foolish man who built his house on sand, right? Joe would never have done that. He would have known better. And so did Jesus, who in his ministry joined practicality, you know, the earthiness of what it means to be in this, alive in this world, and spirituality together. Um, and he, he offers us wisdom not only for construction, but also for life. Um, and we also know something about Joseph from his family history. I love this. We noticed, I don't know what it is with this particular series. As we're preparing, we're getting like new thoughts, just one after another. And this was one of the new thoughts for me. Um, Joseph's family history gives us a lot of information. And it's fascinating, isn't it, that the first book of the New Testament starts with Joseph's family history. So why introduce, why would... Matthew introduced the story of the Savior, the Messiah, with something as boring as this one, begot that one, begot that one. Don't, that's the kind of stuff in the Old Testament we skip over or we read it and fall asleep. Why? Why start the whole book of the New Testament this way? Because for first century readers, this was anything but boring stuff. And it was actually a signal to the observant reader that this story is anything but ordinary or boring. See, this list of names in the first 17 verses of, of Matthew's gospel, it is what, what they call the, it, what's called a legal genealogy. Mary has a genealogy too, but this is a legal genealogy. And in Jewish custom, what this does is it connects a son, in this case Jesus, through his legal father to the ancestry. And this one connects Jesus through Joseph to some remarkable ancestors. We, we learn that Joseph was a descendant of King David and many other historic Jewish luminaries. And, you know, social standing was connected to these legal family trees. So most genealogies were fudged a bit. You know, they got edited a little bit to skip over some of the less desirable leaves on the family tree. But the thing is, there is, in Matthew's, in this legal uh, genealogy, there is a distinct lack of editing in this list. In addition to the famous shining names, Matthew includes other names that weren't as shiny. This genealogy reveals that Joseph's line also included some dark, infamous names, which another writer might have deleted. Matthew includes Gentiles in this list and sinners in this list, and oh my word, even women of all people who were traditionally not included in these gene genealogies unless they were the wives of famous men. There were four women that Matthew included 
And they were not luminous at all. They were scandalous. There was Tamar. Tamar, who had dressed as a prostitute to trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her. Rahab, remember her? She was a hated Canaanite. And she was a real prostitute. And she betrayed her own people to help Joshua's spies and save her life and her family's life. Ruth, a Moabite, a Moabite who married an Israelite. And yet the law said that descendants of Moabites were excluded from any service to Israel's God for 10 generations. This is a reminder. See, Matthew's leaving clues. This is a reminder to the readers that David was only a third-generation descendant of this woman. They knew the stories. David never should have been king. And perhaps worst of all, Matthew acknowledges Bathsheba without naming her. He acknowledges her as Uriah's wife and mother of Joseph's ancestor, Solomon. But again, every Jewish reader knew the story of she who must not be named. They knew how celebrated King David committed horrible sins toward her. They knew about the child she conceived, either through a coerced or a rape relationship. And the Hebrew language is absolutely clear that that's what happened. She did not tempt him. He sent his guys to snatch her and bring her to him. They also knew that after that, David, she came up pregnant. David's attempt to cover up the murder of her husband. They knew all of this. They knew he'd broken at least four of the Ten Commandments, and yet God allowed him to remain king. See, there's more to this, isn't there? See, Matthew refuses to sweep this mess under the carpet. He said yes to the whole truth. He included everything, even adultery, exclusion, incest, murder, and sexual abuse. He included it all, good and bad, all of it in this legal genealogy. Why did he do that? This is awesome. I think he did it to show that Messiah came into the world through generations of less than perfect human beings because there is no perfect so that from the first 17 verses of the story, every reader would know that there is room in Messiah's family for everyone. Regardless of who they are or where they come from, whatever their race, ethnicity, or culture, no matter what they've done or what's been done to them. See, that this genealogy survived unedited is miraculous. Why didn't they edit it? For centuries, they were editing a lot of things. I mean, there's a woman apostle, Junia, that Paul wrote about. And oh, sometime in the Middle Ages, one of the, the copyists decided that this can't be a woman. It has to be a man and put an S on the end. Things were edited a little bit. We can trust our script Bible. Don't, don't, don't go off on that rabbit trail. The point here is it's miraculous that it survived, that it was written in the first place, and that it survived. Why? Because it reveals the miracle that Jesus can take anyone's 
shame-filled, pain-filled story, any messy, imperfect earthly family, and redeem them. This is shocking, but what an introduction, isn't it? It is shocking in the most wonderful ways. This legal child of Joseph would change the law itself and begin a spiritual genealogy that would include all who want to be adopted into his family through faith because that's what Joseph did for Jesus. And all of this might help explain how protective Joseph was of his betrothed wife, Mary, and of the baby she was carrying. See, we explained a bit last week about their two wedding ceremonies there and the year-long vow of celibacy that they were to keep in between uh, those two celebrations. What does that mean? That meant that they were legally married, but they were not sharing a home or a bed when the angel Gabriel showed up to not only one, but to each of them. Mary had had her visit, and now it was Joseph's turn. Now, we know this much about Joseph, but not much more, including even how old he was at the time. Zachariah and Elizabeth, we know they're up in years. Mary is almost certainly a very young woman, a teenager perhaps, but most of the Images created of Joseph over the centuries have pictured him as a much older man. Got some of those up there. That's fairly typical of Middle Ages up through the Renaissance. And the reason for that is fairly simple. The Gospels don't mention him after the story of Jesus going to visit the temple when he was 12 years old. So it's almost certain, I mean, it's likely that he died sometime between when Jesus was 12 and when he began his public ministry, probably somewhere around age 30. So People assume that Joseph was already middle-aged or older at the beginning of the story, and that his other kids were, from, were, were older as well, older than Jesus, and they were from an earlier marriage. And maybe that's true. We honestly don't know. But I think it's far more likely that he was around the usual age for a Jewish man to be getting married for the first time, uh, probably in his 20s. Most of the time they got married when they were able to financially support a family. And then they would, they, would, they would take on that responsibility. In other words, the way I picture Joseph here, he's a young man. And he's probably got his normal young adult stuff going on. When his plan, ordinary plans for an ordinary marriage to an ordinary girl in Nazareth suddenly get interrupted. And it's just enough to make us think here a little bit. How would you handle that? What would you have done with that when you were in your 20s? What kind of maturity and wisdom would you have had to lean on as a 20-something-year-old to steal with angel showing up and becoming the father of Messiah? I don't know. Joseph, as we're going to see, does extraordinarily well. Yes. And with what looks like astonishing peace, which is why we're focusing on that today. Yes. So let's read the story from Matthew's Gospel first chapter, and let's pick it up in verse 18 after the genealogy. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And literally, it doesn't mean take her, like David snatched, took Bathsheba. Possession. Right. It's not that word. What it literally says is, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Don't hesitate to receive, to receive Mary alongside you. That's beautiful stuff. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him, literally, he will be known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And again, it's not command, right? He had a choice. The, I, the, the word here, he did what the angel of the Lord had appointed him to, as in an appointed time. And took, no, and received. So that says, he did what the angel of the Lord had appointed him to do and received Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until he gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. It's so much, isn't it great? Mary and Joseph received the same message. You will name him Jesus. So they likely named him together. So like Mary, Joseph said yes. But the thing is, what, it, what was it that Joseph was saying yes to? Before we answer that question, you notice that Joanne was doing a little bit of translation there to help us mm-hmm. read the translations. I think I can do like a minute on this or something. We find this, in our preparations, we're spending an awful lot of time looking at the original languages because we find that translators write their own bias into they the way do. that they use these words. And of course, we all do. We all, you know, we see from where we stand. Joanne tells us an awful lot, and they do that. But there's so much command and control language sometimes written in the scripture that isn't there in the original. So like this word commanded and taking, and it's so much more aggressive than the original text is, which is more relational. And it makes God appear to be some kind of military, like overlord, who's just, you know, trying to force people to, to do things they don't want to do. And it's, that's not who God is. So theology, what matters, and we talk about this a lot with our students, what matters about theology is what does it say about God? That's the important thing. And if you've got some theology and it leads to a God that is less than the God that's revealed to us in the scriptures, you need to go back and you need to look at your theology because there's something human in there that's kind of diminishing and not magnifying who God really is yeah. and who the scriptures reveal him to be. And it has an impact then, because Joanne and I used to teach the very first course for ministry students in the seminary that we mm-hmm. teach at. And we would get asked them to write us a spiritual autobiography. I think I told this story before. And, and, and it was lovely to get to hear the stories of these students, but some of them had used this kind of command and control language. And they were dutifully submitting to the will of God, which is, okay, a good thing to do. But God is not just asking us to dutifully submit. It's a love relationship. 
God is saying, I love you, and will you respond to me with love? And they would never mention the word love. They would hardly ever mention the word grace. Um, it was, you could and there tell. was all this sense of, we've got to do this, and it's got to be horrible, and we can't like it, otherwise yes. it's not really from God. <laughs> our faith is a burden <laughs> on our shoulders. And they were getting that from the churches they were coming out of, mm-hmm. because they were getting that, I think, in part from some poor translations. So that's, that's one reason. If you ever wonder, it's like we made fun of ourselves last week at the Christmas party. <laughs> About the, you know, for those of you who weren't here, the Hosanna staff did a uh, 12 Days of Christmas on each day of Christmas. Hosanna gave to me. Yeah, messy version. A very messy version, yes. (laughs) Including, we made a joke, you know, two Greek words. Uh, Why do we do all that? Because God is better sometimes than what what we read. In English. In English, yeah. God is so much better, and it's important for us to know that. Okay, so what was. Joseph saying yes to, to this good God who is offering him a gift. What does he yes, say yes to? Well, first he's, um, he's saying yes to construction. <laughs> now, this time we don't mean his job. He's a builder. He, he constructs things. But, but it's the invitation to construct a home and a life that would nurture a Messiah. But it is interesting, isn't it, that his chosen occupation would be excellent preparation for that role. You might not have thought of that originally, but uh, if we were discussing this in our preparation, I thought of the Wright brothers. Yeah. I'll, try, I'll try to avoid going too much into this, but they weren't the only ones trying to build an airplane in 1903. There were some more scientific types doing the same thing, but they kept focusing on thrust. The Wright brothers said, we know thrust. We've got to have enough power to get this thing off the ground. The problem is, once it's off the ground, how do you control it in the wind? It's a balance issue. Well, guess what the Wright brothers did for a living? Mm-hmm. Anyone know? They made bicycles. Yes, balance. Their full-time job was to build things that could do balance well. And that's the reason, one of their biographers suggested, that's the reason they succeeded when the well-funded scientist from uh, Harvard crashed his plane into the Potomac River straight down. He got off the ground, but it fell immediately because he did not know what they knew about balance. They were well prepared. Yeah. Joanne thought of King David in the Bible again. Yeah, As a boy, he had killed a lion and a bear with a slingshot to protect his sheep, which gave him some pretty unique preparation to take on the giant Goliath mm-hmm. when everybody else would have tried to have done traditional military tactics, and the guy was huge and probably, that probably would have ended badly. Yeah. So maybe this pattern is true more often than we think. God prepares us for his calling in ways that don't seem to make sense at the time. That might even seem a little counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. And yet we see God wastes nothing. We don't have to re- look back at our lives and regret all of what seems to us as detours and problems. We can maybe repent of things that we shouldn't have done. But he uses all that we are and all that we've done to help us live more fully into our calling. Yep. If we say yes to all of that. Mm-hmm. There is such great peace. Yes. So Joseph was not only saying yes to construction, the construction of a life-giving home for his earthly family. He was also saying, and to his calling, he was also saying yes to the life-giving home God had originally made for the entire human family at creation. I love this part. Oh, I love this part. Uh, You can tell we're very energized because there's a lot of, this was new, a lot of new for us. 
And if you want another hour on the Wright brothers, I'm good to go. Yeah, he's good to go on that. <laughs> so it wasn't just earthly home for the Messiah and Mary and Joseph. It was earthly home. I mean, the cosmic home. And you know the story. You know how God created all that is in interdependent oneness. And then blessed it all as Mayatov, Tov. It's so fun because we started the year with Tov and we're coming back to it, you know, here toward the end. Called it, he blessed it and called it all very good. We know how the first humans in the garden were tempted to take things into their own hands and, and then they suffered the consequences. Because God's original Tov order, goodness, was disordered. Sin's hierarchy replaced love's equality in human relationships. Fear and power over others replaced faith and power with and for others. And yet, as God described these unwa- the, the unwanted repercussions of their choice to them, he wasn't cursing them. The word curse is not used anywhere. He was just saying, hey, because you did this, You're going to have to live with the consequences. And here they are. But in all of those consequences, he included one promise, that one day a redeemer would come who would restore everything sin had separated back to God's original blessing of oneness. Joseph, you know, he must have been as astonished as Mary was when, when Gabriel appeared to him in a dream announcing that Joseph had also been chosen as part of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy to Israel and also Yahweh's promise to Eve. Don't be afraid, Joseph, the angel said. Receive Mary alongside you. Listen, meaning, be her husband as God intended husbands to be from the beginning. Not lording over your wife, but laying down your life for her, Ephesians 5. Recognizing that she's your equal creation partner, Genesis 1, created to stand side by side with you, even though you're not physically missing a rib, like the first man was. And uh, yeah, well, I got to say it. Yeah. Right, rib. He wasn't missing a rib, which... Again, when we were, I was laughing because he's thinking of the Wright brothers before, and I'm thinking about Martin Luther. Because did you know he had a special name for his wife? Do you know what it was? Rib. There are letters that still. Dear Rib. Dear Rib. Dear Rib. Yeah, anyway, how about that? I just hope he didn't have a spare rib. Uh, <laughs> that's bad. Yeah, but that, and she would be included in the genealogy, so that's okay. (laughs) So though, although neither of them knew it at the time, listen, they were living in the last years of the old covenant. Do we get that? We are no longer in Christ under the old covenant. It's fulfilled and gone, like Noah's covenant, like the covenant with all the, like all of them. It's all complete in Christ. They were living in the last years of the old covenant without realizing it. And the child who would be born, 
to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy would do more than restore the greatness of Israel. Listen, he was going to establish a new covenant with his body and his blood that would restore the greatness of God's original creation design for the whole world. And you know, when we too can trust that no matter how chaotic this world may look or feel, all the promises of God are already fulfilled in Christ then we are going to be able to trust beyond what we can understand, beyond what we can control, just like Joseph did. And yes, there's peace in that. Joseph also said yes because he was a man of character. Matthew uses the same word to describe Joseph that Luke had used to describe Zachariah and Elizabeth. We called them righteous. We pointed that out two weeks ago. Matthew's using the same word here, same word in Greek even. He was a man who knew and did what was right and good. And if he was a young man, then that's even more notable because he had not had the years to mature into that. He was devoted to the things that mattered most, his commitments to his family and his community and his God. If you look closely, we actually see he kind of illustrates what was considered the ideal Jewish man of his time. We looked this up, read a scholarly article about it. Um, We see some of this explicitly as his later habit of taking his family all the way to Jerusalem for Passover every year. That's why Jesus was there in the temple at age 12. He was there at 11, 10, 9, 8, all the way through. We also see it in Joseph's openness to experiencing God in his dreams. He was a mystic. He trusted that his dreams could reveal something of God, that that this angel he dreamt about could be actually from God and, Mm -hmm. and knew what to do with that which most Christians to this day don't know what to do with those kind of experiences and encounters. And it may have been another reason that he was specifically chosen for this role. See, I I don't believe that Joseph is just a tag-along, the way that he's presented in most of the Christmas stories. God chose Mary, and Joseph came as part of the package. You know, he was uh, was her plus one uh, that she invited to the party. I think God chose Joseph as explicitly as he chose Mary. And these are some of the reasons that we think that are probably there. Most of his character, of course, because we don't have much of his story, comes through implicitly rather than explicitly. Most of it in the quiet consistency of his character. Now, maybe he was extremely verbose, and he's talking all the time, and just nobody ever wrote it down. But what we sense from him is that he's actually no drama gel. He gets a message from the angel of the night in the morning. He simply gets up and does it. Yep. We don't get the sense that he's hot-headed, that he's rebellious, that he's anxious. What we sense is he's humble. He's open. He's responsive. He's got his head screwed on straight, we might say, in our own time. Mm-hmm. And yes, he's righteous, but he's not self-righteous. Yeah. Like those Pharisees were that his son would encounter all the time. One, the article that we read said that the ideal Jewish man was somebody who knew how to live, in our words, in the tension of the opposites, to integrate the physical and the spiritual aspects of life, to honor the past, but be able to live in the present, to know with the mind, but also to hear with the heart, to live a life of self-discipline, but not say no to the good things that God would offer him. So I love this. Joanne found this. The Talmud, (laughs) Jewish Talmud, insists that Every person will have to give an account to God, eventually, of every good thing in his life that he did not receive. There's permission. There's permission. Yeah. 
We don't have to spend our lives saying no to goodness, to good things. That's just somehow that's going to make things, you know, that's going to screw us up or make us bad. They're saying that God is a God who is a good God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. James says that. Mm -hmm. James 1, 17 or 14 or 196 or something like that. So goes along with Thomas Traherne in the what, 18th or 19th century, as I'm remembering. And he said, you know, one of our problems is it's not that we desire too much. Mm. Our issue is that we desire too little. Wow. And God has more to give us. So Joseph believed this, it seems. He opened his home, his life, his heart to receive Mary and the child. And by the way, probably not out of romantic motivations. We don't know that for certain, but marriages were arranged in those days. So people keep trying to turn this into one of the world's great love stories, and maybe it was. But isn't it perhaps more heroic of him if it wasn't romance, but it was simply his openness to be available to do what God wants him to do? Not because he's getting anything out of it. Both and, both and, tension of the opposites. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's because of his character. Exactly. So Joseph's story invites us as well to nurture that kind of character in our own lives. And when we do, yes, there's peace in this. Isn't this fun? I'm having a great time. How about you? (laughs) (laughs) And if it isn't obvious yet, Joseph was ultimately saying yes to courage. Right? He could have made the whole situation about himself, like most of us would do, and then go around seeking sympathy for himself about, you know, how wrong this is, how badly he's being treated. Life is never going to get any better. He could have been Eeyore. (laughs) Or he could have gone around seeking revenge. He could have made it about others. He could have gone around and gotten lots of approval and attention. He could have made it about the law, seeking justification to do the unthinkable to marry and her baby because the law would have allowed him to have her stoned to death. And, of course, the baby inside her would have died, too. But he did none of this. Instead, he chose to become vulnerable to the inevitable criticism and ridicule that would come from making the decision, the choice he did, for the reasons he did. He chose to remain faithful to the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. He chose to keep his mouth shut his eyes and his heart open, and his hands and feet ready to act on the slightest direction of God. Through it all, Joseph gave his unqualified yes to God, to Mary, to the baby. An unqualified yes, not in words, but in action. And this is remarkable. There is no record he felt the need to explain it to anybody. How often are we walking around wanting, and when we kind of want to move in a direction God's inviting us to, and we know other people are going to warn us and be afraid and tell us not to go there, you're going to fall down the slippery slope or whatever it is. We let them influence us. No. Or we try to help them understand There's no record. He felt the need to explain this to anybody. Wow. There's a lot of courage there. Perhaps more than anything else today, Joseph's courage may be what God and the world are waiting to see in Jesus' family members. 
both individual Christians and the church as a whole. Maybe people are leaving uh, Christianity as it is today, not because of Christ, but because of Christians. That's what caused Gandhi. Gandhi said, I would be a Christian except for Christians. What about, you know, what could it be like if we had the courage to shut our mouths, open our eyes and hearts, and do whatever God calls us to do for whomever we're called to do it, whether or not we understand it or feel it or agree with it or like it or whether anyone else understands it all? What might it be like? Wow. If Christians in the church today had the courage to bear the consequences of doing what is right in God's eyes, regardless of how anyone else may look at us or talk about us or misunderstand us. How about that? How about we do it anyway? See, I believe that if we chose Joseph's kind of courage, we'd be as surprised as Joseph was at the extraordinary ways that God would show us, all of us, that truly nothing is impossible with God. And yes, in this, there's so much peace. Can we back up for a moment to that fishbowl image? One of the things that, <clears throat> one of the things, I, I love this one when we put, put together the PowerPoint, but one of the things that bothered me about it was that the bowl that the fish is jumping into is identical to the one that he's leaving, which is not what the kingdom of God is like. It's a much better bowl. <laughs> it just takes some courage sometimes to, to, to jump into it. Yeah. So, anyway, finally, as unlikely as it may have looked, Joseph is also saying yes to contentment. The sense that we get of him is what we would today call a non-anxious presence. Mm-hmm. He wasn't thrown off by all the external stuff swirling around him. Right. Which suggests that there was something solid at his core. There was a deep trust already embedded in his spirit. And that's what allowed him to step up and take responsibility. Not alone. This is not a case of mighty mouse, here he comes (laughs) to save the day. You know, it's it's not that. But to walk alongside both Mary and God, the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. who initiated all this to begin with, to face whatever challenges and goodness the future would bring. And he's a great model to us, isn't he? I'm one of those, I've acknowledged that to you, that anxiety is one of the things that I have to process, far less than I used to as I'm growing more fully into that, that, that deep settledness in my own spirit. But I'm not the only one in the room that does that. And maybe there's other things that keep us from feeling that kind of peace and contentment. But there is peace in this when we can trust that God is involved and no matter what else is going on, everything will be okay. Yeah, because Joseph, no doubt, was feeling all that he was human, but as you're talking, the words that are coming to me are, he, he had quiet strength. Yeah. Quiet strength. Okay, so we're coming to the, a similar place we did last week with Mary. We asked last week about joy, and we're going to ask a similar question this week about peace. So why don't we always say yes to peace if all this is true? Wow, where's our yes to peace? Well, one reason that we 
sometimes find it difficult to say yes to peace is that we don't want to take the responsibility for what is ours to do. See, it seems that when it comes to acting on our callings, we're either all or nothing. We're either doing far more than God has asked or empowered us to do, or we're doing far less or nothing at all. And the question is, what's with that? You know, well, what it seems is that we've got to be getting something out of those choices. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing them. So the overdoers, they must be getting something out of overdoing. Like maybe they're getting attention, admiration, approval from other people. Maybe they're trying to prove something about that they're worth the air they breathe. But along with that comes the tyranny of exhaustion and burnout. And then the underdoers, they're, what, they're get, what are they getting out of it? They're often getting to escape into the shadows where they won't be seen, they won't be critiqued, they won't be rejected, they won't be ridiculed by others because they're not doing anything to be seen. See, all of that comes with the tyranny of idleness and inactivity. So we mistakenly think that we'll have happier, more peaceful lives if we either step forward or step back. But Joseph, as Tony said earlier, he does the both and. It's holding the tension. It's bringing and integrating what seem to be opposites together. He did the both and. Joseph did what was his to do, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. That's a great phrase. What if we did what we were called to do in any given moment, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else? Yeah, there might be in the overdoers like Tony and me a little bit of anxiety about, but it's not going to get done. You know what? We rob our brothers and sisters, overdoers. When we overdo, we rob them of having that tension inside the underdoers that they need to wrestle with so that they can courageously step forward. We need to make space, right? Are we together? Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Joseph was content to stand quietly back on the sidelines when needed, not hidden, not invisible. Just there, quietly when he needed to be. But he could also very assertively step up and be seen when God directed him to. Like when he got the dream after uh, Jesus was born and Herod was, you know, he got another dream with a warning saying you need to take Mary and Joseph to Egypt. And that's a whole other thing. But he's assertively acting when he needs to. Like Joseph, we can say yes to peace by following Joseph's balanced example, right, brothers? And also following a scripture that describes his and our calling so very well. Micah 6, 8, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Sometimes we don't say yes to peace because we don't actually know what it is. We can easily get confused in thinking, as, as it seems to be in the news these days, that peace is the absence of conflict. 
Whereas avoiding conflict isn't actually peaceful. And often engaging conflict is necessary in order to be able to arrive at true deep peace. It's one of the things that we, we learn as we get further into this. And sometimes I provoke my students a little bit and say, well, if conflict is a necessary step in building a strong team or, or to bring inside together, then why don't we actually encourage it rather than avoiding it? Mm-hmm. I do. Really? <laughs> I'd rather start something and get it out in the open than... Just let it fester. That's a good my grandma. My grandma used that word a lot. Fester, Uncle Fester. What no. we see most often these days, it seems, <laughs> is people seem to alternate between provoking fights with one another and then disengaging. Mm-hmm. And neither, and so they end up neither making peace or keeping peace. Right. So many tombstones. I don't know if they do this as much anymore. Used to say, "Rest in peace." As if dying is the only way that we're ever going to experience it. God invites us to not merely rest in peace, but also to live in his peace in this life. Which is a peace, not as the world gives, Jesus says. So today is a day to reimagine what his peace could look and feel like. And maybe to receive it in all of its fullness and not in some tiny little version of it that's missing a lot of the essential pieces. Yeah, and another reason we don't say yes to peace is that once we understand, you know, there's going to be conflict, um, we fear that the conflict's not worth it. It's just not worth it after all. So, you know, questions. How many of you want some change to happen right now in your lives? You want change in the church? Do you want change in our country? Do you want change in the world? I think everyone, if I asked you to, would raise your hands. I'm not asking you to. To say, yes, I want change. See, the thing is, though, are we willing to do what's necessary for that change to happen? Because no lasting change can happen, as Tony said, without conflict. You know, the only things that don't change are things that are inert, like rocks. They're changed from the outside, from rain and all, but... They're just there. What uh, Things that are inert don't change, and things that are dead, like corpses, don't change. Anything that's alive must grow and change. It's the way God designed things. So people who refuse to change are refusing to live as God created us to live. Do we like the necessary tension that comes with healthy, life-giving, God-directed change? Nope. But do we have to find ways to grow in our inner capacity to hold that tension with God? Yes. Do we have to be willing to do that work here inside of us so we can stay engaged in the process of making change without becoming overwhelmed or overreactive? This is the work that Jesus invites us to in becoming real peacemakers, not only peacekeepers. And like Tony said, Rick said earlier, the real peace is not the absence of inner conflict. It's the grace of holding it with God until there's real peace, until there's real peace inside that we can then offer to the world on the outside. So as Joseph shows us, when we're willing to say yes to the discomfort of unnecessary conflict, we'll be given the gift of grace 
to live into the comfort of much-needed change. And that is very much worth it. One more reason. Yep. Sometimes we fail to say yes to peace because, same thing we noticed about Joy last week, we want really, in the end, only wonder for ourselves and not for others. And like joy, peace is a gift best experienced when given away. Mm -hmm. Now, what many people want is for other people to make peace with them and others to act more peacefully to me or others to leave me in peace. Uh, They sing, let let there be peace on earth. I've got the wrong tune there. Let there be peace on earth. Let there be peace on earth. And let Let it begin with you. (laughs) Someone else. What we have less of are people willing to initiate peace themselves, to have hard conversations about things that keep us apart, to lay down some of our own agendas, to be the peaceable ones, the no-drama Joes, who live out a quiet, consistent, righteous life in the world, no matter who or what is going on among around them. So maybe you identify yourself in one of those four reasons. Maybe there's something else. But if you're not living in peace, here's an invitation today. And, of course, the answer is to this gift that God is offering us. The obvious answer is yes. So how do we do that? How do we say yes to peace? Let's imagine that the Holy Spirit has just shown up at your door this morning with something better than a check from Publisher's Clearinghouse. (laughs) Because checks can't actually buy the things that matter most, right? I forgot to invite the worship team up. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> I'm seeing a couple of them on their way here. If the worship team could come up at this point, please. Yeah. Um, checks can't actually buy the things that matter most, like hope, joy, peace, yeah. these qualities that we're symbolizing by candles and by the motions of our own lives. And here's the Holy Spirit standing here saying, I come in peace. <laughs> I come with peace. I come with it for you, not just some abstract thing for peace on earth. It's for you to live out. So what do you do? Do you refuse the gift? Talk to the hand? Or do you say yes in every way possible? So remember that word for yes you chose at the beginning of the message? We take a look at those slides again. We had those lists of slang words in English, and we had the words words in in a foreign language. Okay, good. If you got yours... Let's shout out those yes words that we've chosen, okay? If we're going to say yes to peace this morning, be loud and boisterous about this. Be silly if you want, okay? Pick another word if you want. Let's shout them out. One, two, three. Yay! I heard every single one of those. (laughs) That was awesome. Did anybody yell out anything different or creative or funny? Right on. Right on. Right on. That's awesome. Okay, well, now we're going to invite you to sing out those yes words you have chosen. We're going to do this in English with yes, but if you want to substitute one of them, you can do that as the worship team leads us here. Da, Lord, da, Lord, da, da, Lord. (laughs) Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord.
blessing as well. Joseph, welcomer of the unexpected, how freely you stepped into the unknown with your unwavering yes. Joseph, dreamer of dreams, how attuned your heart was, waking or sleeping, to the promptings of angels. Joseph, nurturing stepfather, how tenderly you embraced your unconventional family, lighting the way for us also to receive all. Joseph, there's still so much we don't know about you, but maybe that is your gift to us, that we may see in the stepfather of Jesus a mystery that sanctifies the quiet, hidden, and untold in our own lives. May we, too, live our days in the holy shadow of your Son, our Lord and Savior, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen? Amen. Yes. Let's close with some singing. All right, if you have to go, you can go, but just please remain with us if you can. We're going to finish out the song. Let's start with the chorus, yes, Lord. And I say it, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Amen. Let's do that chorus again, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Amen. Right, I press but not crushed. I am pressed but not in crushed. Persecuted, not abandoned. Shook down but not destroyed. I am pressed beyond the curse for his promise will
not amen. You can say amen, but we said what? Yes. All right. Amen. Have a good rest of your week. And we'll see you Christmas Eve at what time? There you go. 4.30. If you come any earlier, I'll still be in bed. <laughs>